0: Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network.
1: Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Back pain in the young athlete. It's something we often don't think twice about in adults, but in kids, back pain in the active athletic kid is often a different beast. One of the more common conditions is the spondylolysis or a stress fracture of the pars interarticularis. It's a condition that can go undiagnosed for a long time. Today on the podcast, we have an expert in the area of spondylolysis, and I've always enjoyed his lectures on this topic. I'm sure you'll appreciate his take. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Stan Herring. Dr. Herring is the senior medical advisor and co-founder of the Sports Institute at UW-Medicine, co-medical director for orthopedic health and sports medicine for UW-Medicine, and co-medical director of the UW-Medicine Sports Concussion Program. He is a clinical professor in the Departments of Rehabilitation Medicine, orthopedics and sports medicine, and neurologic surgery at the University of Washington, Seattle, and holds the Zachary Listed Sports Concussion Endowed Chair. Dr. Herring served as one of the team physicians for the Seattle Seahawks and the Seattle Mariners, His clinical practice focuses on the diagnosis and non-operative management of neurological and musculoskeletal injuries, particularly focusing on spinal disorders in active people and athletes, as well as sports-related concussions. He also is one of the founders of AMSSM, the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Stan. Mark, it's great to
0: be here. Thank you.
1: I'm excited to have you. I always enjoy having conversations with you and and catching up, especially now that we don't have that regular opportunity with our uh, NFL partnership since my Rams left here several years ago now. It's good to see you uh, because we get to do this through a little bit of video, and and, uh, I'm looking forward to our discussion today. You know, we can certainly talk about a lot of things regarding spondylolysis. I I think a good first step is just explaining to our listeners what exactly this problem is and and why is it an issue for our younger athletes.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mark. You know, a spondylitic injury, the type that we're talking about today is called an isthmic Spinalytic injury. It's not a traumatic injury or a degenerative injury or a congenital injury. So, this is a, as you said, it's described as a stress fracture, at least of the PARS in articularis region. Actually, it can be in a mm-hmm. variety of different places around the ring. And you're right, it is an injury of, of youth sports, even athletes up to their mid 20s. I've seen acute spinalytic injury. You know, it's a different kind of fracture, though. This is a fracture which uh, has a hereditary disposition. It occurs in younger athletes than we're used to seeing sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't hurt at all, and it doesn't heal well. There doesn't, it doesn't form a lot of callus. So it's, it is a stress fracture, but a, perhaps a different type of stress fracture. The one thing which is clear, though, in active youth athletes with back pain, it is high on the differential diagnosis. I'm fond of saying young athletes haven't earned the right to have nonspecific low back pain like the rest of us have. <laughs> So I I tell my residents, if you have a young athlete and she or he is really quite talented and they stop participating because their back hurts too much, that's a strong suggestion that this is not a strain or a sprain, that this is something more significant. And certainly a a pars fracture ranks high up on that list of what this could be. So a high index of suspicion for that athlete with axial low back pain.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the big key, you know, I kind of stress with the residents that rotate with me as well, is that you you really can't just automatically discount back pain in a young athlete as as a, a lumbar strain, which is oftentimes the the default diagnosis for most. And and part of that, I you know, I give them a little bit of uh, grace there just because They don't have the background and expertise like we got through our training, but it's important for them to remember that, hey, this kid who has that persistent, exactly as you said, if they're stopping activity, that's highly concerning in that athlete. Uh, And that's one, two, and three on my differential always is is spondylolytic lesion, no question. Particularly if it drives them to
0: see you. I mean, one could argue that still the most common diagnosis in young people with back pain is, is soft tissue, but if it's bad enough for them to stop sports and come to see you, you're right it's a parse fracture. And if it's not a parse fracture, it's something even more worrisome. Yeah, you, know, you have to we have to worry about is this tumor infection or a, a big disc herniation. But if a young athlete stops their sport because of axial low back pain, and usually they will tell you they've had some hints, it really hurt two mm-hmm. months ago, I tried to keep going It hurt more and more and more. So if they if it's to that point, this is a time where an assessment and diagnostic testing is
1: probably in order. You obviously have lots of experience with spine issues. You know, I, I think probably the vast majority of the kids that I see turn out to be spondies. Uh, certainly not a hundred percent. No question about that. But I'd say at least fifty percent of the ones that I see as athletes that come in uh, ultimately turn out to be a spondy. But I think it's it's interesting you know, when we talk about those other things like tumors or things like that. Once you've seen so many of these, you know, when it's something even more than that. You know, the kid that I, I remember two very distinct kids that were like excruciating back pain, barely could move like were so uncomfortable on the table. And both of those kids turned out to be vertebral osteomyelitis. And, you know, you, you get to see these patterns and things and you get to figure those things out after a while of the ones that, you know, oh, yes, this is this is Kind of typical spondies, but this is something that really we got to be worried about more because this doesn't fit any of those normal typical patterns that we see regularly.
0: Yeah, thank you. You know, the word expert comes from experience, and you're Mm -hmm. right; it's
1: all about pattern
0: recognition. And I think the teaching point for your audience is that have a high index of suspicion for something more than a strain for a young active athlete. If she comes in and she's hurting enough not to play, you need to look hard, and you need to take a careful history, do a
1: physical, and you're you're Mm -hmm. right. This is this is something that warrants your attention. So why don't we transition into that, Stan? You get a teenage athlete that comes into your office seeking your advice on their back pain that they've been having for a month or two, maybe longer, because we know that these things sometimes take a little while to come into your office. So go through how you would approach things from history taking or, or what are some key things you're looking for that may differentiate things for you, maybe kind of sorting out your differential through your history.
0: I mean, we are insistent about a comprehensive history. So our patients get a long questionnaire that includes a review of systems, previous treatment, medical problems, family medical problems. And so we want to know who they are. And the story is often, my back's been hurting off and on for a few months and I sort of got over it, but it was never really went away. And then I was running to first base and I had to stop because it hurt so badly. The history, the mechanism and onset is important. There's rarely a single traumatic event. And then anything else, fever, chills, pain bother you at night, have you been ill in any way? We ask, you know, it also asking for things that would suggest spondyloarthropathy, protracted AM stiffness, fever, chills, rash, stomatitis, those type of things. So we, the, the mystery is in the history, right? You make the diagnosis with the history and then you confirm it with the physical examination. So, also, even if it's a spondy, sometimes there will be some suggestion of radiating discomfort because sometimes the L5 nerve root or L4 nerve root, whichever level it is, can also be irritated just by the reaction so it's predominantly axial pain but sometimes there's a component of radiating symptoms mm-hmm. to it as well.
1: I've definitely seen that as well and that obviously shouldn't sway you that it's going to be truly an actual radiculopathy and still you need to be thinking about spondies in there even if they do have that radiating component to it. So you get your, your histories done, you have ideas in your head. I've always used my physical exam as now let's start to prove some of those theories that I have in my head from what I took through your history. If I'm going to use my exam to see if I can stratify this differential a little bit, what may be more or less likely, what are some key findings on physical exam? Are there anything that are hallmarks for Spondy that you typically find or what you may think of something else as far as a diagnosis?
0: The first thing, like you said, is are they sicker than the Spondy? So with your athlete with osteomyelitis, as we tell the residents, if you go in the room and shake the bed, it hurts them. You know, if they're so miserable that you literally cannot move them, it's not yeah. a spondy, right? It's, yeah. it's worse than that. So, I mean, your physical exam starts with vital signs. Are they febrile? Palpation. If the, you know, spondies are usually not that tender to palpation, uh, but for vertebral osteomyelitis or compression fracture or other more nefarious things can be. Lumbar range of motion is, we, we do kind of do the same exam no matter who comes in. So we we, we do inspection, palpation, and then we go through lumbar range of motion. Everyone likes the idea of lumbar extension and single leg extension because it loads the posterior elements. However, there's been quite a bit written about this. There was actually a nice review, a systematic review done in 2016. The sensitivity and specificity of lumbar extension and even single leg lumbar extension is zero. Posture predictive value <laughs> is zero. So I mean, we all like, we think in our mind, we're loading the posterior elements and then there's nothing wrong with that or having them lean back on one leg and jump up and down. But if it doesn't exacerbate that symptoms, it doesn't take spondy off the table. Right. That's one of the things I try to, we try to say, you know, that yes, you're taught that and but the sensitivity and specificity is not there. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. You know, the absence of proof is not the proof of absence, but Mm -hmm. that alone is not enough. It can hurt with lumbar flexion. If they do lumbar flexion and repetitive lumbar flexion, they begin to develop ridiculous symptoms that may be more likely a discogenic etiology. So inspection, palpation, range of motion. We always examine the hips, you know, mm-hmm. as, as you do as well. And sacroiliac compression and distraction testing is also wildly inaccurate. However, if they have a spinal arthropathy and you put load through their sacroiliac joints, that'll often make them feel worse. And so, it's, it's valuable in that regard. And, and then lower extremity inspection, we look for the usual things. But, you know, we all we do a scan. Look, you know, you, we look at the skin of the lumbar spine to see if there's any a, a hairy nevus or anything that might suggest. A more significant uh, underlying spinal dysmorphic problem. And then no matter who it is, we do a comprehensive neurological examination, you know, mm-hmm. reflexes, sensation, and motor exam every time, every patient. The thing about that, when you do drill tension, straight leg raising, you know, tight hamstrings are also tip off that there might be a spondy because of the facilitation of the of the hamstrings. They get tight soon at the spinal lithesis. So you're right. The diagnosis is should be made by the history and it should be confirmed by the physical examination.
1: I, I love what you said, Stan, about, and I think this is a take-home point for any of the residents and fellows out there, is is do the same physical exam on everybody. That applies to anything. It's not Not just for when we're talking about spondies and back pain right now, just do the same thing, be complete, and you'll definitely not be as likely to miss something. Because obviously, yes, we seeing those patterns like we just talked about before, we can get into a little rut of, oh, it's going to be the same old thing, and you skip over some parts of the physical exam, and then you realize, oh, man, I really missed a key finding there that... Uh, is there, And that's part what's always got me excited and makes me love this field is I love the history taking. And I love doing the hands on physical exam. There's so much value into that. And, you know, the imaging and all that stuff is great. And it's nice to confirm those things. But boy, I mean, you really can figure a lot of stuff out if you really just kind of sit down and talk to someone and, and, and spend the time getting the details, which I, sometimes can be a task in a teenager or younger, and then really just doing a good thorough exam. I, I love that point. Well, we, uh, as, as I say, when all those fails, ask the patient.
0: They'll usually tell you what they have, you yeah. know, if, if you <laughs> That the part about the conference for history and physical is you get to observe the patient's pain tolerance and their and their behaviors, and you need, you can get a sense of not only what they have but who they are, which is so mm-hmm. critically important in terms of treating them. I am like you; I, even in the area era of modern imaging and advanced imaging, uh, I still think that the value of the history and physical examination cannot be overstated. The deal is in my office is if you're not in a gown, I'm not going to see you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So everybody's in a gown for their their Mm -hmm.
1: first visit. You know, I think it's interesting too, you know, the onset of the EMR and how tempting it is for a physician to be trying to do your note at the same time you're doing the history taking. I've not gotten to that. I've not gotten into getting a scribe for myself. I still bring in a piece of paper into the room with me and I'll write down my notes on there as I'm taking histories. But I'm also using that time to sit there and observe the patient, just like you said, because, you know, that time when you're talking to them, that's very valuable. Just watching the positions that they're sitting in, what seems to be positions of comfort. How do they react to some of the questions that you ask, too? I mean, it's just if you're sitting staring at a computer screen and clicking the buttons, you, you lose a lot of that valuable part of what you're doing in medicine. Well, you know, thank you, Mark, for that. I'm glad to hear there's another member of the Luddite Society
0: because I, <laughs> I have connecting with the patients don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yep. And if you're not looking at them or you break eye contact with them or are you, I mean, I, I understand that there are that young physicians are much more computer literate than I am, but I do the same thing. I don't take my eyes off of them or turn my back to them during the visit because otherwise you don't know who they are my residents or young faculty will come out of the room and I'm I'm amazed at how organized they are. They've seen the mm-hmm. patient, their note is done, it's in the system and they've ordered the diagnostic testing. And then I walk up and say, so what's the guy's dog's name? You know, <laughs> you know what color are his eyes? You know, mm-hmm. what, are, what are the three most favorite things to do? And they, they pat me on the head and, you know, see me on the corner, but my point being that, if you want to get your patients better, you have to know who they are. And frankly, mm-hmm. if you don't want to burn out, you need to learn to love the story. If you love the story, and you, like Will Rogers said, people are like barbed wire. They have their sharp points. you know. And mm-hmm. if, you, if you learn the most about who they are and, and what they are, it's more satisfying for you and it's better care for them.
1: So we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll continue our discussion of spondylolysis with Dr. Stan Herring. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, You know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editorcore.com. That's editorcore.com. It's fun one of our hand surgeons here, Marty Boyer, he's a perfect example of that. I I you know having Work with him and consulted with him and him being a mentor to me when I started here. It was very interesting watching him and how he interacts with his patients because I would swear probably 75% of his clinic time is talking about things that are not related at all to the person's problem, what's going on. It's about their life. And actually, if reading his notes, it's the same way. He puts in all those little nuggets about what they were doing last week or what they cooked and things like that. And I love it. And I love him for it too. That's that's, that's
0: how he remembers who they are. Right, yeah, for sure. Listen, yeah, and I, I don't know how I took you down this rabbit hole, but the bottom line is for Spondies, <laughs> Uh the, the, the history is critical. And then the examination, although there's many non-specific facets to it, should confirm there's no significant neurological findings, peripheral nerve entrapment, soft tissue findings, sacroiliac findings, or other things that may take you away from the diagnosis. And uh, if you can get local pain with repetitive lumbar motion, fine. If not, you're still not off the spondy bandwagon.
1: And I don't mind honestly going down that rabbit hole stand because I, I think it's important for our listeners too and especially for the learners that we have of of how those things are important and and it is a key part of still that art of medicine that sometimes is hard in these this day and age to to practice as well. We've talked about history and physical, and we kind of we, we almost kind of poo pooed imaging a little bit there for a second there, but but imaging is is pretty important for this particular problem in one way, shape, or form. So, sure. so what do you find is most valuable to you in getting imaging for these patients? You're right.
0: To overuse imaging doesn't make sense, but in this particular situation, you know, this is a radiological diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So this is this is a, a diagnosis made by imaging. So what do you do? And the old days, we used to get five views of the lumbar spine. AP lateral spot and obliques. Uh, There's a lot of radiation with oblique views. It turns out that oblique views do not increase the sensitivity of seeing a spondylactic defect on plain film. I suggest for our patients, we get a standing AP and lateral weight bearing views. Those two views should be enough. You only see about a third of of a injury on plain film. So if you see it fine, but if you don't, you're still not out of the woods. The standing view is nice because if they have a bilateral spondylolisis, it may slip with weight bearing. So you get to see what the alignment is. So it's critical that those films are weight bearing and limited mm-hmm. to two views. I don't think you need a spot view. If you do those films and you see a parse fracture, you may have a diagnosis. But if you don't, you may not have a diagnosis. And remember, if you see a parse fracture on plain film, that might not be the level that hurts. Yep. Because remember, these can these happen, and we see these in in, in in kids as young as five or six. And Mark, you'll remember from the NFL combine. Although you were in the, the medical room, and we were in the orthopedic room, for some reason, all the offensive linemen had lumbar spine X rays taken. About a third of them had pars defect. Yeah, for but sure. The third of them, the third of them didn't have back pain problems. I mean, so it's it's you know you have to even if you see a pars defect on plain film, you have to make sure that correlates with what you're seeing clinically. So. AP and lateral of the lumbar spine. At that point, we talk to our patients about a decision tree. Say, look, you may have a PARS fracture that we can't see. There's a pretty good chance you might based on your history. So we can make two choices. You can choose to take a rest trial. and We'll do no more imaging. If you're willing to rest six to 12 weeks, and rest is key, the mistake with PARS fractures is no one rests the patient long enough. Mm -hmm. We're going to do a little, no, I say that if you're willing to commit to several weeks of rest, you know, and it, we make we could stop here if you don't want any more imaging or exposure. Most of the patients you see and I see are on like four different, you know, specialized teams. They play all year, and <laughs> yeah. they're, you know their their parents are like come in for jersey as well, and so they're highly motivated. And at that case, the question comes: What's the next step in working? And this is this. It'll be fun to talk to you about this, Mark, because I know I'm a pediatrician, and mm-hmm. no one likes to irradiate kids, mm-hmm. myself included. So there's been a move to just do an MRI and the MRI does show disc pathology, osteomyelitis. It shows all those things beautifully. The question is how well does it show the pars and articularis region? It doesn't show cortical detail, bony detail as well. And in some cases you can see edema in the region of the pars and articularis and sometimes extending into the lamina and also into the lateral mass earlier than you can see on other imaging. And that may be helpful. However, in the best studies where there's the gold standard being CT and spec scan, MRI is pretty good. It misses a couple of specific findings more than And One is a fracture of one cortex, you know, an incomplete mm. PARS fracture. It misses that one more than CT bone scan, and it misses the bone stress reaction, which is not quite yet a fracture. So what difference does it make? Actually, if you're going to rest the, the athlete, then maybe you don't do any of it, you just rest them. But... If you do an MRI exam and you don't see much and you may let the athlete go, if a parous fracture is going to heal, the ones that heal are the stress reactions where there's not a break yet seen on CT or a break in only one cortex. Right? So if your thought paradigm is I want the ones to heal that are going to heal, then you may not be out of the woods with just an MRI scan. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? if I'm suspicious about it, it's a high-level athlete, I go ahead and get a spec scan, a bone spec scan. And I know it's radiation. I talk to the family about it, but it it tells me two things. It tells me if the pars fracture I see on x-rays, even the one which is hurting now, maybe one above or two above, that may be an old one and not the new one. And secondly, it allows me to do a very thin section CT, just a few stack cuts, not a big radiation CT, where the spec scan shows increased uptake with radioactive. And what that shows me in exquisite detail is what the fracture looks like. Mm -hmm. So if it's a fracture, which is brand new, it involves one cortex. The margins are not spread apart. They're not ebernated. Pretty good chance that one will heal. So that's a longer period of rest. If it's a fracture, which is corticated, fragmented, spread apart, that's not going to heal bone to bone and the rest period is less. Mm -hmm. Having said all that, here's my conversation with my patient. Even if I do everything right, this little early crack may not heal bone to bone there. A crack may show up on the other side, but even if it does not heal bone to bone, the chance of you doing well clinically is really good. I guess in a, you know, I, I would love to be in your practice with you when, when you have an 11 year old gymnast come in, right. Mm-hmm. And she has a unilateral pars fracture with closely approximated margins. I think both of us say, well, you know, going well, it give this a chance to heal and the chance that this is one that really does heal. I still work up most of my athletes this way. Uh, if they come in and they've already had an MRI examination, which many have had now, I'll tell them what I think the limitations are and, and, and ask them what their tolerance for uncertainty is. I'm a little more prescriptive if they're younger, because the thing that the listeners can learn from you, what Dr. Halstead will tell you is you have an 11-year-old gymnast and she has a PARS fracture. When her growth spurt occurs, she can slip with yep. no pain. Right. So when they're nine, 10, 11 years old, I get worried if they have a parse fracture. I see them back through their growth spurt and get a standing lateral x-ray once a year to see if they're slipping. Agreed. You know, and so to make this answer more simple, I guess, get. I think everyone agrees you should get two views, x-ray standing, weight bearing x-rays. And then you, then there's a decision tree. If you really want to know, if you really want to know with the best accuracy, whether there's a parse fracture, which is active, the spec scan followed by thin sections CT still remains a gold standard. MRI is close, but the ones it misses are the early ones. And so you see mm-hmm. I, I have this conversation with my patients saying, this is what I know and what's your comfort level with radiation versus the need to know exactly what you have. And like I say, I may be a little bit more pushing them toward letting me irradiate a young child if they're young, and I'm worried that they have a fracture. I say once you know what they have, in our in our treatment paradigm, once we know exactly what the fracture looks like, that, that dictates how we treat them.
1: And I'd dictates- love to, I'll expand upon that with you further too. I, I would agree wholeheartedly with just the two views for the plain films. It's fun looking for the Scotty dog, and it was fun during my training looking for the Scotty dog, but I, I don't know that that really added anything clinically to me. And you're right, it's two more additional shots of radiation to the pelvis and the reproductive organs for for anybody there. And so I stopped doing those a long time ago. We did four of these. We, we didn't do typically the spot. I would do AP lateral and then the bilateral bikes. Yeah. When I started training, we did lots of specs. After I left training, I'm almost exclusively MR now, to be honest, And I think this is an important point to make. How your MRI is done can make a big difference too. So we had it set up and we met that, we did this with our radiologist where we have a specific, what's called a spondy protocol, where we make sure that we're getting those thin slices through the vertebral body so we can get a better idea and we can actually make some judgments on the fracture there. But we add the sagittal stir in there too. And that's the distinction, you know. And I think this is an important point for trainees too. If you just order a standard lumbar spine MRI, the protocol is it's a disk based protocol. They do their images through the disks, they skip over the vertebral areas. And that's where you are going to miss it. And they oftentimes don't do the stir. And I find that the sagittal stir imaging is is very valuable. And I remember starting here when we started doing that. And I (laughs) actually, we used to call our radiologists after a while who called these things normal. And I'm looking, I'm like, no, that clearly there's some edema in that area of the bars there that you looked over because that wasn't something that they were doing routinely, but it was something that I had some training in just from my fellowship. And then we, we developed this protocol. So we have a standardized protocol at our own institutions, imaging centers, and then some of the surrounding imaging centers, if we have to get MRIs elsewhere based on insurance. So I've done almost exclusively MRI, rarely do spec scans anymore. I will sometimes add C in there, as you mentioned, to get a better idea. And, and I, I do like what you talked about as far as, as counseling these patients about what is our goal. I would love for all these spondies to heal, but you and I both know, as well as many of our listeners, that, that that likelihood is actually fairly small when you look at the literature of actually true bony healing. Then I have to rephrase it with the families as like, I, we're going to try what we can to get this thing to heal bone to bone. But we're not going to lose sleep if we don't, because we know and and I, I actually will use oftentimes the experience from the NFL combine that we know that high level NFL players have these on a very frequent basis and play well and play without pain. Half of the US gymnastics team, I believe, I remember a study or some data that showed this, have these and actually are competing at an extremely high level without back pain. So in the big picture of things, I think putting that thing into perspective is important. And yeah, I definitely think our goal should be healing, but again, not trying to make our treatment plan that. We're not going to let them get back to normal stuff until they're healed radiographically. Because if we do, there's going to be a good chunk of patients. You're going to probably disqualify from sports. And I've had many people that have come to me for a second opinion that that was what was told to them is that you're just done. This thing didn't heal. So, so you're done, even though they're not having any pain and they can do all their skills and all their sports without any problems.
0: You've brought up so many good points and let me see if I can, can capture them. The MR, you are correct. If you're going to use MRI, you and your radiologists have to understand what sequences to get. The best studies where MRI was specifically ordered to look for spondy, and then compared to CT and bone scan, they still miss some. But those studies are older now; it hasn't been repeated recently. And you're right; you do see bony edema, and sometimes you see it sooner. So the question you you bring up, a, 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 we could practice side by side and get to the same endpoint. When I I say to my patients, I see edema on the stir sequence of your MRI. I cannot tell you if that's metabolically active from this. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know. The bone scan is a physiological uptake test. So I said, but you can. You've done the same thing I have. You said, listen, whether this is physiologically active or not, it looks suspicious to me. I don't see a cortex fracture on the MRI, and you've said that sometimes if you're ambivalent, you'll get a CT. So we arrive at the same place. I have, depending on the athlete, I have 100% accuracy that what a physiologic test shows and a CT shows. I've had many athletes who've come in with an MRI and they don't want any other testing. So I have the same Mm -hmm. conversation you do. I say, look, there's some suspicions here. The nice thing about the MRI is I know you don't have anything else. Thank you for the free look at your spinal canal, (laughs) you know, and your disc. Thank you for that. You know, it makes me sleep better at night. Then I say the same thing. I say, look, and let just say in my office that they're 11, they come in, they have a unilateral pars fracture, it's incomplete, the margins are close to You say, This has a good chance of healing. We need to rest you long enough to see if it heals, but no matter what I do, it may not heal. Pause, pause, pause. And by the way, it probably makes no difference. Yeah. Now, I must check, a study that was done, this well known study from years ago, actually followed athletes with known parsed fractures and, and including some with grade three spinal throughout their athletic career. And, and they, they did not have symptoms at that time, but maintaining athletics did not make any of them worse. Mm-hmm. So yes, they, I mean, you're right. Yes, you can play with this. This is not like other fractures. However, there are certain things that we need to get right. One is they don't get better if you don't rest them and, and, and how long depends upon the ones that can heal one cortex, closely approximated margins, young athlete, we rest them for a while, 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. An 18-year-old with bilateral pars defects, with sclerotic bone and widely spaced and fragmented, we rest them until they don't hurt anymore, and then mm-hmm. we reactivate them. But the, to me, the 100% history is that they never rested long enough, right? That's why you get them. They've been off and on for six or eight months. They've been to physical therapy. They've taken anti-inflammatories. They've done all this stuff, you know, mm-hmm. but, but, but they're... This this is not an injury that happens to kids on the chest team. This is an injury that happens to the most productive, <laughs> active athletes because they're, they're, it's an overload failure injury, right? So yeah. resting them is, is important. I think we're coming to the same conclusion and our pathways sometimes diverge. Part, part of the reason I think our pathways diverge too is when they come to see me, it's a spine visit. Right? Mm-hmm. You're the spine guy. I, want, I, these, I, I have a self selected population of athletes who want to know exactly what the matter with them is. Part mm-hmm. of the bias with us is you came here, you're not going to leave until you know exactly where the fracture is and what it looks like. And we, and we go over all this with them. But I don't disagree with your approach at all, as long as the, the patient is instructed. Yep. Now, having said that they need to rest, question for you, my friend and colleague, is do they need to be braced?
1: Yes. I'd be curious your thoughts on this. I, I do not brace. Again, going back 20 years to my start of my training, the Boston Overlap Brace, the BOB, and I had some very early patients who I put in those when I started my practice coming out of fellowship. I had some very fun patients who, you know, they affectionately named their brace and, and uh, did all sorts of lovely things to the brace. And I had a brother-sister combo, who a sister who I had who did get braced, and then a brother who also developed a parse fracture, and I did not brace because it was when I was changing my approach to it. And she was was mad at me that I didn't brace the brother, but I braced her. So I I don't brace any longer. The only time I do, I sometimes will have patients use a, a lumbar corset if they're having discomfort sitting in class just to kind of give them a little better kind of postural alignment so they're not getting into that slouch position or positions of discomfort while we're waiting for things to heal. And also while we're doing therapy, which i love your take on is, do you send these kids to physical therapy? I I do. I rest them. My kind of typical protocol is I rest them for four weeks completely, and then I'll see them back. And at that point, we usually start to initiate physical therapy for the next several months with the goal of getting back to sports participation at that three-month point. I stress with them, I think the physical therapy is crucial because I think part of the problem with this injury with the overuse, it's not just the overuse. It's deficits in strength and flexibility of the muscles that affect their spine. And so then the, the spine gets overloaded. So if we're not addressing those things, then I think that they're very likely to recur, at least in my opinion. So that's why I put them through a therapy protocol for, for eight weeks. But that's the only time I brace. And that's selectively. And I offer it to patients. I tell them you don't have to do it. And that's always a big thing, just like the donut pillow for the, the kids who have coccyx pain. It's a, a trouble for them to have to do these things, especially for the Boston overlaps. For the lumbar corsets, we can get by and I usually tell them that, hey, if you're not wearing something skin tight, no one's going to know you have it on. So you'll probably be fine and you can wear it all day long without anybody noticing it because that is an issue from an image standpoint, as we all know, in a teenager.
0: So great to have a pediatrician on this uh, podcast with me because you know the real stuff. As you mentioned, you're know, bracing when, when Lyle McKaylee did his very important initial work with this since he's in Boston and became the Boston over brace and these kids were braced for six months. And then they were mm-hmm. weaned for six months. And mm-hmm. if you look at the clinical outcome, almost 90% of them did well. And these were including some people into their thirties, yet less than 20% healed with bone to bone healing. So their radiographic outcome and their clinical outcome was dramatically different. And this has mm-hmm. been repeated in many other studies, studies which included extending the bracing to the thigh. And so even with lumbar rigid lumbar bracing and thigh bracing, the clinical outcomes were good, but radiographic evidence of healing was poor. And guess which ones healed? The ones that were stress reactions and the ones that had a unilateral you know, cortex or mm-hmm. single fractures. But the bracing didn't seem to really change that at all. This issue of what's the difference between clinical outcome and radiographic outcome, I think bracing for the great part has fallen out of favor. Biomechanically, Boston overlap brace or other rigid lumbar brace actually increases transitory motion at L4-5 and L5-S1. At best, a lumbar brace, including a lumbar brace with thigh extension, sort of grossly controls lumbar motion. But to think it's really going to control load at one single segment, we have trouble doing that with pedicle screws and plates. Sure. I mean, I mean yep. It's,
1: yep. Yeah,
0: surgically, it's hard to do that sure. not versus percutaneously. And you're right, the braces are wildly unpopular, and I've seen them used from everything from uh, target practice to planners when they're, when people are out of them. What, <laughs> the, the, the way that we use a brace. Is if I have an athlete who says that you know, she or he has really rested for three weeks and they're no better at all, then the brace is an effective boat anchor. You know, they mm-hmm. probably aren't resting enough, and they just can't help themselves. And so we'll we'll brace them so they don't move as much. I mean, it, it's, sure. it's, it's, it's it's you know it's truly it's truly I I tell, and then this we're going to use a boat anchor here. We're going to we're going to tether you you know to a line so you don't move as much. <laughs> And either they get better, or they hate the brace so much they tell me they're better. And then we, we but we don't keep them in it for months either. And, and it, the use is only for a short term adjunct to to trying to get their pain under control. It's really I clinically for me, it, it's so critically important that they get pain control. Right? Yes. That they come back and say I don't hurt. I mean, they have to not hurt. You can't start their rehab until they don't hurt. Your comments about physical therapy are also very pragmatic and insightful. There's not one scintilla of evidence that going to physical therapy makes a difference in long term follow up for parse fractures. You and I both know that. Mm -hmm. However, once again, if you can take away some of the field time and training time and put it into therapy, two things happen. You decrease their load. Right. And secondly, Mm -hmm. you do allow for some good habits to begin. You know, addressing the flexibility and motor control of the entire kinetic chain, adding core exercises, because so many athletes are strong in their arms and legs, but their core doesn't work. So there, I, I tell my athletes, there's no doubt. I can't promise them this, but there's no, but there's no downside to core strengthening for sports performance later in life. But I also like the fact that it, it takes them off the field. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's sort of like supervised time away from overload. And so I, 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 like that as well too. And the other thing for your listeners, if you do all this and their pain doesn't go away, you got, you got to look harder. Yeah. In your, for in, sure. your, in your case, you've already got the MRI because you're a clever man who's got a two for one bargain when you ordered it. But if you don't have one, <laughs> you got to get an MRI. You have to, you have to look for spinal this, these usually get better. I mean, yeah. they, they don't always get better. And we can talk about who goes to surgery, but if they just don't budge at all, you're not done looking yet.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And that could lead us a little bit to do you ever consider any repeat imaging at at any point? And I will probably gather if we talk to people fresh out of fellowship, there's probably a lot of repeat imaging that gets done. Because as we all know, early in our careers, we still have a little less confidence in our skills and what we do. And, and hey, let's just make sure that this thing is healed. And then as we kind of alluded to earlier, we see those patterns, you know, the kids that are good, probably they're healed. The kids that are still struggling, those are the ones that probably something else is going on, or maybe we haven't healed it, or maybe the patient wasn't as compliant with their rest as we had hoped that they would, and they're still keeping it aggravated. I don't tend to do any repeat imaging with one exception. In the kids that I see with bilateral PARS injuries, I will get a single lateral radiograph at their last visit. Again, I'm not looking for healing there. I'm just looking to make sure that it didn't start to misbehave and started to slip because as you and I both know, as you alluded to before, you can be pain free and slip. So I want to know where that thing stood when I'm sending that patient back to sports because if they do come back into my office, it gives me a better idea where did we leave things and were we already starting to slip at that point or not. And so that's that's the only time I personally do repeat imaging unless the person's having lingering pain that is just that single lateral radiograph at that follow-up three-month visit.
0: That is wisdom, my friend, and particularly the younger, the athlete. They're prepubescent. Yes. They get a sta- I get a standing lateral once a year until they they, they go through puberty because- mm-hmm. I mean, these gymnasts who go from a spinal injury to spinal spondylatopsis, they they completely slip and don't have pain. They come in with neurologic compromise. So I I agree with you. Follow-up imaging, I tell my patients, if we get follow-up imaging, we're going to find things I don't know what to do with if they're doing well, you know, and it's not going to change treatment. Because once again, this usually heals by fibrous tissue and it doesn't change my treatment regimen. But to reiterate what I think we've said, if they do well, but they come back and they're hurting again, then you have to chase it again. So Mm -hmm. most times athletes have a spondy at one level and they sort of get over it and you don't see them again. Because I've been at this so long, I have seen athletes who come back and a year later they fracture at the level above. I had one athlete fracture four, five, three, four, and two, three each a year apart (laughs) and went on to play division one college football successfully. Yeah. Amazingly enough. If they're hurting again, you have to look. And yeah. remember that while well, it's not common, it's not impossible that if they have a parse fracture at one level, that they, or they can have something else at another level. But you, I think what we're saying to your listeners is, as we've gotten older, our tolerance for uncertainty is greater. Mm-hmm. You know, and it doesn't really, I don't want to, sometimes the parents are so insistent, I ask them if they would like to be imaged again. You know, I said who can image <laughs> the whole family? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they're, just, yes. they're just insistent that they want to follow up image. You know, I said, well, why don't yes. we just all get in the scanner together? Well, sure. Or sometimes I suggest we brace the whole family. But yes. the, uh, all kidding aside, no, I, I do not. I completely agree with you. I do not routinely image them again. And, as, uh, and the other thing about going to physical therapy, they need to go to a physical therapist who understands the spine, Yeah, who can, who can be clever about looking to make sure that the core exercises, ba- exercises are good. And it's not, just, it's not just strength, but it's power and motor control balance. In those situations, if you have a physical therapist who's also an, an, a licensed athletic trainer or a certified strength and conditioning coach, whoever you're using, they need to understand how to train athletes, right? Not just, mm-hmm. you know, do core exercises. So particularly, you know, so it, it is an opportunity to change the way these athletes train for the rest of their life. And, you know, Mark, it, for very elite athletes. I We, we have some very high end as I'm sure you do, people who do high-end training for us. Sometimes mm-hmm. I suggest that the family enroll their athlete with that program for a year or two, train with them, if mm-hmm. they're going to have collegiate or pro expectations. So it's I love the fact that you can take someone in high school and, and, and undo the bad training they're going to inevitably get and prepare them. So maybe that's the silver lining of this injury is it opens up the opportunity to just discuss different types of training and conditioning.
1: Yeah. And I, I, it's a great point. You know, one of the lines I like to use a lot with my patients is, is we need to make sure we're doing things to get the, patient ready to be an athlete we can all go out there and do sports right at all of us at various levels some of us obviously much better than others but if we're not doing the things that get our body ready to do that sport no matter what sport we're doing we're missing the boat so you know if you get a runner that goes out there and all they do is run and they're not doing any other strengthening flexibility things for their body odds are they're probably more apt to get hurt than the person who's not and same thing for those gymnasts you know if they're working on exclusively but they're not working on any of their back extensors. Well, what are you powering against? You're powering against your strong abs against this weak (laughs) extensors. And where are you going to crank through your spine? So, you know, we shouldn't just accept it as that's an injury that's going to be in that sport. Let's do something to maybe try and prevent it. And I I don't think we have any good research to show that that really makes a difference as you kind of alluded to before, as far as does the physical therapy ultimately make a difference. But boy, I'd certainly like to think that I'm, preparing that person a little bit better. And sometimes I tell these athletes, this is a little blessing in disguise sometimes when you get this injury, because you probably haven't done any of this stuff before. And working on these things for a few months is probably going to help you as an athlete. If you're getting that core and your hips stronger, improving your mobility around your spine, that's probably going to let everything work a little bit better. And you may come out of this as a little better athlete, even not picking up a bat or getting out there and getting on the parallel bars or what have you. We try and put some little silver linings in there because I know this could be a devastating injury. This is one of the two injuries that when my medical assistant goes back into the room, they know that I've talked to them about. It's either a spondy or it's an ACL tear because those are the, usually the two injuries that bring out the tears when we start talking about what's what's coming up as far as time out for these particular injuries. And, and this is one of those that tends to be the the tear provoker.
0: Yeah. Like you said your resident, the visit's not over till someone's
1: crying, right?
0: Because <laughs> it's, it's just... Although although I guess I'd pick a spondy over an ACL, I don't know, choose your poison, but the the, yes. the, the, the the silver lining is the great majority have a happy ending. Having said that, there are some that don't, as you and I both know, and even in our spine practice where we see you know just a lot of, of young people with spine pain, it is uncommon for us to send a patient to surgery for this problem. Certainly if it's a spondylolisthesis and they've slipped and they're unstable, that's one conversation. but an, an insight to spondy without a slip it's rare that they don't get better. So rare mm-hmm. that once again, you need to make sure that's what you're treating and not something else. If They do go down that road. And I'm talking, Mark, in our practice of, I mean, there's 16 of us musculoskeletal physiatrists seeing spine all day long. I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd be surprised if one or two a year went, not to not yeah. follow thesis, but the PARS fractures. There are some who just don't get better and an inside situ PARS fusion or a, a, a fusion at that level has pretty good outcome. But once again, is if that's a very rare referral. People mm-hmm. say to me, "What about a bone stimulator?" Um, <laughs> yes. And once again, since the primary purpose is not healing bone to bone necessarily, the literature, or a case report, their case report studies, and it, it's mixed. And I, you know, I mean, it's it is another way to make the patient sit still longer. But, <laughs> sure. I, but I don't routinely put bone stimulators on these fractures. Once again, they're a different type of fracture. And the other thing there's there's some the, the Japanese have written a lot about this injury. Probably some of the best work there. More recent work about some low intensity pulsed ultrasound to mm-hmm. treat these. That literature is quite limited. Some of it didn't look at clinical outcomes and some of it the, the, like the the patients in the study were 7 or 8. So if you start hearing that your patients want pulsed ultrasound or a bone stimulator or they need to go to surgery you need to find somebody like you who does this all the time and get perspective on this cuz You're grasping at those points. And this is where perspective and experience become really critical. And while, like I say, while we do operate on some, it's very uncommon, particularly without a slip.
1: Agreed. Agreed. I think in the 20 years of doing this myself now, I think there's probably three or four that I can recall that I've ever referred on for getting their PARS fracture fixed just because they just, we tried everything and they never got over the hump. And we confirmed that, yes, it was still the PARS that was the problem. Those were pretty infrequent ones and and fortunately all of them have and having seen some of them back for other issues down the road, all of them have done uh, remarkably well, so that at least is good there once they finally got something that was able right. to stop it. but yeah, you're right, and the only other ones have been the the higher grade uh, slips. But it should be something that's that's a few and far between. We shouldn't be thinking of acutely fixing pars or things like that, or having a high referral to our spine surgeon colleagues for this diagnosis for sure. And the
0: and the reason your patients that got operated on did well is because you selected the proper patient to be operated on. I mean, you proved you, yeah. you because of your experience and judgment. You said we've done everything correctly. This is nothing else. This is the one, mm-hmm. and then that's that's why. Once again, knowing your patient and, and also knowing the subject material is so critically important before you subject a young athlete. I mean, we are talking, you know, if you fuse a segment in a young athlete, that's a real operation now. And it, even a direct PARS repair, is that's a real operation, not, not a decision to be made casually and a decision that should
1: not be made very often. So, Stan, we like to end our episodes with a feature we call the Pearl of the Podcast. It's our guest time to give their important take-home nugget for our listeners. So, so, Stan, I'll give you an opportunity to give us your Pearl of the Podcast. Okay, and being greedy, I'm going to give you a string of pearls. That's awesome. because I love there, it. there can't be just one.
0: Pearl number one, even if your examination does not show a lot of pain with extension, single leg extension and rotation, it can still be a spondy. Pearl number two, you have to rest these athletes. Not a little bit of rest, not sort of rest. They have to rest, which we, you and I know is hard. Pearl mm-hmm. number three, don't tell them they'll never have back pain again because everybody has back pain. Your teaching point yes. to them is say your back's going to hurt in the future. Everybody's does. But if you get the type of back pain that you had now, you tell me. Cause they never yes. forget the type of back pain that keeps them from performing. And, and number four, if you can't get them better, keep looking. Either you're missing something or you're missing something. I mean, you don't know who they are, and they, or you're missing something else. So keep looking. So those are my string of pearls for my dear friend and colleague as we wrap this up. Awesome.
1: Thanks so much. I'd really like to thank my guest, Dr. Stan Herring, for his time today going through this common problem causing back pain in our young athletes. I also would like to thank him for his mentorship and friendship over the years. I've always enjoyed my trips out to Seattle with the St. Louis Rams and getting a chance to uh, chat with Stan pre and post game. And and knowing confidently we have some really supportive colleagues that were on the other side of the sideline and always good people to chat with. I I will take you as a Stan, as opposed to the Stan who owns the. Los Angeles Rams. You're the stand that's high on my list. The other stand is not very high on my list.
0: Well, well um, I, won't, so. while I won't touch that comment. I will say that <laughs> I, I, I do share. I, it, you actually, you actually made it worth coming to St. Louis when we play the Rams in St. Louis. I looked forward to that trip. For, for first of all, I think partly for those concretes, those 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 uh, uh, heart attack in a in a jar uh, ice cream dishes that we would get when we were there, but more important. Oh yes, yeah. The, more importantly, the uh, the chance to see you and collaborate with you and you know, it's really a pleasure and an honor to to do this podcast with you. Thank you, Mark.
1: I appreciate it. And you know, and, and my take home from, you you know, you mentioned the concretes, which probably was Ted Drew's here. That's the, that's the yes. place in St. Louis. You got to go for a concrete on old Route 66. My favorite thing, and we actually have this, we named this at our house, Seattle Mac and Cheese is our favorite was going down by the, the market and uh, going to Beecher's Cheese. And I would always bring home their flagship cheese and If you want a to die for mac and cheese, I will make my plug right now for Beechers on my podcast. They are great, and we love making that. So that's our tradition in our family because we would always look forward to those Seattle trips where dad would bring home a couple blocks of their cheese because it's a hard cheese and would, would tolerate the flight home and making some Seattle mac and cheese. So so there's my, my shout out to Seattle food there too. So I appreciate you checking out the episode today and you can find all of our episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I do appreciate your feedback and five-star reviews and I do appreciate when you let your colleagues know about my little podcast here. I'm Dr. Mark Halster, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.